I am so glad to be with you here at Ivy Creek. Uh, you have a great church. Your testimony uh, is far and wide to the strength of your church and, and to your outreach and, and your love for people and uh, your uh, uh, commitment to the Word of God. Uh, and, and I know that uh, that's in your DNA. I also know that you have a great pastor who is leading you in that direction. Uh, Craig has become, and I mean this, one of my best friends. And uh, he and I, we have a lot of things in common, and, and we love to talk. We love to talk church stuff. Until last night, we loved to talk University of Georgia football. Uh, I, I don't even want to see a football game, you know, that kind of thing. But we just, we just uh, uh, really, really connected. And uh, I'm telling you, and, and I know you know this, but I'm, I'm saying it from my heart. You have one of the greatest pastors in our denomination uh, in your pastor. And I, I have, to, I have to, to, to be honest with you, when you have a pastor like you do, churches come after them, and they want them to go other places. I want you to know, I gave your pastor some spiritual advice this morning. I was very spiritual. I said, Craig, you have a great church. I saw that at the 930 service, and, and it's true again in this service. I said, you have a great church. And I said, you know, buddy, that because of that, the word gets out, and other churches without pastors are going to come looking at you, and they look for you. And then I just very seriously gave him some spiritual advice I think you'll appreciate. I said, if that happens and you listen, I'm going to hit you right in the mouth. <laughs> so I, I want you to know that. So I've made that promise, and I'm just going to hit it. So if he comes in one day with a bruised lip, you will know, and then you can deal with it. But uh, uh, I said, buddy, you need to stay right where you are. And he, let me tell you, that's how much he loves you. I talk to pastors all the time, and I can tell you, I, can, I have literally walked in churches to begin revivals, and the pastor would call me off the side. He said, hey, by the way, uh, do you have a church I can go to and be pastor? I think, I just came to do your revival. Wait till the revival's over, and I will probably help you by, the, by preaching that, that wants you gone. But, because, uh, 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 you know, I'll get you in trouble with something I say. No, but, uh, you know, it's amazing. But every time I'm with your pastor, the round tables are personally, he's always bragging on you. And talking about what an incredible congregation you are and how blessed he is. So uh, thank you for being the church you are. And, and uh, you're a church that's engaged in missions. Not only are you reaching this community, but you're also reaching out across the world. Uh, and, and now in the capacity I serve, I want to thank you uh, for uh, your support of missions globally and locally uh, through the cooperative program and also through Mission Georgia. Uh, our, our responsibility, and you're going to see that in the message today, is to take the gospel of Christ to the world. You believe that, amen? amen. And one of the ways we do that is through missions. And you're doing that. And, and I don't say that because I'm now uh, employed by the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. I really don't. If you know me, and you've known me very long, you know that I believe that, believe that as a pastor and that I led our church to, to be a, a leader in missions as well. Uh, I couldn't do it if it was just my job to do it. If I had to say that because it was my job, I couldn't do that. It has to be in my heart. And I do believe that we have the opportunity, privilege, and responsibility of taking the gospel to the world. And you do that. You're one of our leaders in doing that. I was talking to our executive director, Dr. White, just a few days ago, and he knows that I'm here, and I was so excited about coming. And uh, he wanted me to tell you hello and, and tell your pastor hello because, again, he knows what you're doing and how you're reaching the world. 
This morning, I want you to open your Bibles with me. I know that you're, uh, you're people who are led by a pastor that uh, teaches God's Word, and he gets into God's Word, and we want to do that this morning. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 3. Acts, chapter 3. And I want to read the first 10 verses, and if you will, follow along with me as I read. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I know you have an outline this morning if you received a bulletin when you came in. So I'm going to ask you to take that out. And I'm going to ask you to do something with me. If you have a pen or mascara, something to write with, writing instrument, I'm going to ask you to take that out. Because I was a little deceptive when I sent your pastor the outline. Your outline, the title reads, it's what's on the inside that counts. Does yours read that? Does it say that? It's what's on the inside that counts? How many of you have ever heard that statement? Raise your hand. Someone said it's what's on the inside that counts. Well, I want you to take your pens and I want you to mark through the word inside. Just mark through it. And then above, or, uh, above it, I want you to write the word outside. Change it from inside to outside. Because I'm going to attempt to convince you today that at certain times, it's really not what, what's on the inside that counts most. It's what's on the outside. Now, in most, in most situations, it is true that it's what's on the inside that counts. I was watching television some weeks ago, and before you get up, uh, uh, really upset, I, I, I was watching educational television. I was watching the Andy Griffith Show. <laughs> now, for me, that's pretty educational, all right? So I was watching the Andy Griffith Show, and it was that episode, and many of you have seen it probably a hundred times, where Barney and Andy are going to take their girls on a date on Saturday night. So it's early in the week, they're planning the date. Barney's already all excited about taking Thelma Lou on a date. And so they're getting ready. But suddenly something happens. Thelma Lou comes to Barney and says, we cannot go. He says, what do you mean we cannot go? She said, my cousin is coming to town. And the only way that we can go on a date Saturday night is that you find my cousin a date. Well, Barney knew because he had met her that was not going to be easy. So he goes to Andy and he, try, he begs him. Andy says, no way, I've got a date. <laughs> not me. And so they're sitting in the police station, they're downcast, they're, they're trying to figure this thing out, when in walks Gomer. <laughs> and they look at Gomer, and they say, hey, Gomer, would you like a date? Have you seen Gomer? 
Sure, Gomer would like a date. Probably not going to find one, but he'd like one. And they said, would you like a date? And Gomer said, yes, I'd love a date. He said, they said, well, we've got you one. Thelma Lou's cousin's coming to town. You can go with her. We'll all go together. We'll have a blast. And then Gomer says it. He says, is she pretty? And Barney looks at Andy. Andy looks at Barney. And Barney says, Gomer, she's nice. <laughs> and what he was trying to say is, doesn't really matter. It's what's on the inside that counts. Well, it is true when it comes to physical beauty. You know, the, the proverb writer says it well. That beauty is fleeting, and, and we all change, and, and, and beauty, uh, as we know it, doesn't last, but what's on the inside does last, amen? But I want to convince you this morning, when it comes to the mission of the church, it's really what's on the outside that counts. It's what's on the outside. And if there's anything I see today in the church, and I saw it when I was a pastor, and I, I really see it now traveling this state is that we have to change the mindset that we have about church where we have been inward focused. We've got to change that mindset to being outward focused. Because you see, if you look at the scripture, God established a church to reach out, not to turn inward. But you know, gravity pulls. And if we're not careful, even in exciting, growing churches like Ivy Creek, we'll become content and we'll become comfortable and we'll turn inward and, and we'll, we'll be more concerned about what we're doing on the inside than our mission that's really outside the doors of this church. Do you agree with me? Amen? It's very easy to allow that to happen. But I want to I show you from this passage this morning and I want to challenge you and encourage you that you have a mission and that mission is outside the church. Now, let me, let, me, let me clarify that this morning. We have a mission that is international uh, and a, a, a mission to the nations. We're to do everything we can to take the gospel to nations, especially to the places where they've not heard the gospel. But at the same time, we've got to be very careful that while we're focused on the nations, that we forget about the local community. We've got to be careful that we don't forget about our own neighbors. You see, our neighbors are as important as the nations. Amen? The people who live around us. Now, I, I also go in churches. They'll say, well, we're not worried about global missions. We're just worried about our neighbors. Folks, listen. It's not either or. It's both and. But the message this morning is about where we live. It's about this area where you and I live today and what the Scripture says to us. So let's get into the Word this morning. And the first thing we see is this. The church is to be on mission for God. The church is to be on mission for God. God established His church to be on mission for Him. And you see that in the Scripture. You see, our model, first of all, is to be, our model is to be the first century church. We don't have to be like the church up the street. We don't have to be like the church down the road. Too often, uh, in some of our roundtables, uh, one like your pastor is in, uh, we'll, we'll get a conversation, and, and one pastor will want to uh, emulate exactly what's going on in another church. And they'll want to be just like them. And I remind them, you don't have to be like uh, another church. Yeah, we should learn from other churches, and we should take things that, that we, can, we have in common, and we should apply them. I, when, I was, when I was pastor, I, I used to kid them at the church. I'd be preaching, and I'd stop in the middle of a message, and I'd say, listen, 
If you don't like what I'm preaching today, I'll tell you what you can do. Call Adrian Rogers at Bellevue Baptist Church and complain to him, all right? And uh, saying that my message came from there, not really, but, uh, you know, we can learn. I mean, we study other people. We look at what's going on. But, folks, I want you to hear me this morning. Hear me very carefully. Our model is the first century church. It's the church that you see in the Scripture. Now, look at Acts chapter 3. We're introduced to two of its founding members. Two of the founding members of the first century church. I mean, they were the very first. They were part of the original membership. When I became pastor of Hebron Church, uh, it was in 1978. And so I was there for 33 years. And now when I'm traveling, people who don't know the church, people out of this area, they'll ask me the question. They'll say, now, are you the founding pastor of Hebron Church? I want you to know that really offends me. The church was established in 1842. I know I'm getting old, but I'm not that old. Uh, you know, I tell them, no, I was the second pastor. <laughs> Some days it feels like that. But uh, you do see in Acts 3, the founding member, Peter and John were there. They were there with Jesus in Matthew when he said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They were there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he gave them their assignment. They are the founding members. And so these two men are on the way into the temple at the hour of prayer. You see, their, their heritage and tradition is Judaism. And in Judaism, there were set times for prayer every day. And Peter and John still held on to some of those traditions. I like what Paul said in uh, the New Testament when he said, I became all things to all people that I might reach some. And so they don't, they don't give up on those traditions. They're headed into the temple at the time of prayer. But unlike the others who are headed into the temple, they head in the temple realizing something, that they are on mission for God, that they have a purpose for being there. And it's not just to carry out a tradition. It's not to just check off the list that they were in the temple at the hour of prayer. You say, well, where do you get that? When you get home, turn back to Acts chapter 1 and read verse 8. You see, just before Jesus ascended back to heaven, back to the Father, he looks at the disciples, the founders of the first century church, and this is what he says to them. He says, I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And we know that happened in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. He said, and when the Holy Spirit comes and fills your life, you are going to be my witnesses. And you're, begin, you're going to begin in Jerusalem where you live, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the nations. He said, you're going to start here, and it's just going to spread. And folks, let me tell you something. The, the good news of Christianity is from the first century church, it literally spread across the known world. Wouldn't it be great today that out of America, the gospel of Jesus Christ was spreading across the world? But you see, today it's in decline. 800 Southern Baptist churches close their doors every year. I mean, shut their doors and go out of business. 80% of our churches are at plateau or in decline. Now, I'm going to shock you. While that's true in America... In other parts of the world, Christianity is literally exploding. It's growing by leaps and bounds. So what has happened in America? 
I think I know. What has happened in America is this. We have forgotten that we are to be on mission for God, that the church is not just for us to come and be comfortable. The church is for a place for us to come and be trained how to take the message of Christ into the world that needs it. And that's what you see in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John, so as they enter into the temple that day, they look at this man who has been placed there because he's crippled, he can't get himself there, and rather than ignoring him, as we're going to see in a few moments that others did, they look at him and they engage him, and then they share with him the greatest news he could ever receive. That's our model. That's our model. We should be like Peter and John. We should be looking for the opportunities to be on mission for God. And by the way, our mission has been given to us and is the same for every church. Our mission has been given to us. Now, I've been Baptist all my life. Grew up in a Baptist church in South Georgia. From the day I was born, I was going to church. And I'll tell you more about that this week. I'll share my story, but I wasn't going to church always because I wanted to, but my dad said, you're going, so I went. I was always in church. And you're going to understand that I've been Baptist all my life when I make the next statement. These, the early church was not like most Baptist churches. They didn't try to vote on their mission. You see... The mission is not something we can vote on. Now, we can vote on a mission statement. We can vote on how we're going to carry out that mission, and I understand that. But I'm telling you, folks, our mission has been given to us by Jesus himself. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we have our mission. He says we're to go into the world, and we're to make disciples. We're to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we're to teach them to do everything that he has said we should do. It's right there. It's in black and white. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter if it's a church in Gwinnett County, if it's a church in Atlanta, Georgia, if it's a church in deep south Georgia, or if it's a church in the Soviet Union. It doesn't matter where the church is. The mission is the same. And that is that we take what God has given us and we deliver it to the world. And we deliver it to the world around us. Well, we're to be on mission for God. We've established that. Let's go to the second principle. It is this, because this builds... The church is to focus primarily, now listen, primarily on people who need a miracle from God. The church is to focus on people who need a miracle from God. You see that in the second, third verse. Look at verse 2 and verse 3. It's there. You see, there's a man who needs a miracle. He's been placed outside the gate of the temple, one of the gates. The Bible calls it the beautiful gate. I've studied this, and historians say different things, but the primary thing they say is it was the most ornate, lavishly decorated of all the gates, of all the entrances into the temple, and this is where this man has been placed. didn't place himself there because he was crippled. He could not. Someone placed him there. You know, I think that's a whole other sermon. Who placed him there? We don't know. Somebody did. They could have placed him there for one or two reasons. One, because they cared deeply for him, or two, because they didn't want him on their hands and they thought somebody else would take care of him. We don't know. But somebody placed this man at that gate. I mean, it's very clear in the Scripture. You see it over and over again. But I think he would agree with me that he needed a miracle. But I'm going to tell you something. 
as great as it was that they healed him and he, in the name of Jesus, and he walked into the temple and he had experienced physical healing, the greatest miracle of all is not physical healing. The greatest miracle is a miracle that if you are a follower of Christ that you have experienced and every Christian has experienced, it is the miracle of salvation where God takes us out of our sin and places us in relationship with him through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest miracle ever performed. Would you agree with that? And everybody needs that miracle. I mean, every person needs that miracle. You know, it's greater than the miracle of open eyes. It's, a great, it's greater than the miracle of physical healing of a crippled man. It's a greater miracle than the resurrection of Lazarus that we have in the Scripture. Now think about that. And by the way, have you ever thought a lot about Lazarus? I mean, Lazarus is already in heaven. <clears throat> he, I mean, he's there. He's healed. When suddenly, Jesus brings him back. Now, I'd like to have a conversation with Lazarus. I'm not sure he was so thrilled about that. Because here, Jesus is bringing him. I mean, he's there, and all of a sudden, he feels himself being pulled back to earth. You know, why do you say that? Think of it. Think about it. Lazarus had to go through this all over again. He had to die again. Can I tell you this morning that what you experience in Jesus Christ and salvation, nobody, nothing can ever take away from you. Life, death, angels, principalities, powers, circumstances, what people do to you, what they say about you, nobody can take that away from you. What you have in Jesus Christ is eternal and it lasts forever. That's the greatest miracle ever performed. You see it here in the scripture. Well, are you ready? People who need this miracle are right outside the doors of the church. They're not just in the nations thousands of miles away from Ivy Creek Baptist Church. They're right, right outside the doors of this church. Look at this man in the story. Where was he? Right outside the gate. And can I ask you a question? <clears throat> what was most important? The ornate structure of the temple gate and temple itself or the man? What was most important? What was going on inside the building or the man who was outside the building? You see, the truth of the matter is, people who need a miracle are right outside the doors of this church. They're all around you. But the sad truth is, so often, people who need the church most are invisible to the church. Think about that. Look at this. Look at this. This man, how many thousands of people had passed him? over a course of time. This wasn't the first day he was there. He'd been there many days. How many people had passed by him? Now listen, coming to church as they experienced church, but never saw him. How many people? I wonder. Or saw him, but didn't want to make eye contact with him. They didn't want to have to engage him in conversation. You know, can you see a family walking in the temple and mom and dad said, children, don't look over that way. Don't look, don't look. 
You see, you know as I do, if you ever make eye contact with somebody, you then have to have a conversation with them. Now, I'm going to be transparent. Those of you who knew me at Hebron, you know sometimes I do that. Now, I'm going to get transparent. I'm not saying your pastor does this, but I'll say this pastor did this. I love people. Your pastor loves people. I'm a, I, I'm a people person. I love to be around people. Most of them. <laughs> Most of them. <clears throat> but, you know, there are some people that I truly believe, and I'm talking about Christian. I'm not talking about non-Christian. Christian. Who really believe somehow they have a particular spiritual gift. Now, I believe in spiritual gifts, but there are some people who believe their spiritual gift is criticism. And they criticize everybody and everything. Anybody know anybody like that? And you're it? No, I'm just teasing, just teasing. <coughs> I mean, I had those people. I mean, if, if, when they would walk in, it was almost like it made, Craig had made their day to be able to criticize you or criticize something. And we could be out. We may be in the grocery store. We may be in a shopping center or over at the Mall of Georgia, be somewhere. And I would see that person, and I'd say to my wife, don't look at him. Do not make eye contact. <coughs> Turn your head. Look the other way. Look up like you're praying. Look down like you lost something. Just don't look at them, whatever you do. Because if you look at them, they're going to see us, and then they're going to come talk to us. And because I'm the pastor, I'm going to have to be spiritual, and I'm going to have to stand there, and I'm going to have to listen to them, and you walk up and keep shopping. But I'm going to have to stay there. So do not look at them. So we don't want to make eye contact. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that with this man at the temple gate, that might be the way it was. Or he had been there so long, he just became part of the environment. I say that this morning, it convicts me. Because you see, the truth of the matter is, he was strategically placed there. The people placing him there may not have realized that. He didn't know that. But I'm telling you, God had him strategically placed there. Do you believe that? If so, say amen. God had that man placed there. You see, there are people who have been strategically placed all around us. I asked this question at 9.30, and I'm going to ask it again. How many of you have been in this church for over, or in this community for over 20 years? Raise your hand. Have you seen it change a lot? Do you remember when Gravel Springs Road, nobody knew where Gravel Springs Road was? See, I remember when nobody knew where Tequila was. When I was called there, I really was there 36 years, but, but I was there as children's pastor before I was pastor. And when I was called, I lived in Lawrenceville, and when I was asked if I would come serve at Hebron as children's pastor, I said, sure, I'd love to do that. Where is it? I mean, I lived six miles away and didn't know that Tequila existed. I mean, that's how much has changed. When I first became pastor at Hebron, honest to goodness, in 1978, I was much younger, we played football on Sunday afternoon in, on Decula Road. Every 15 minutes, we'd have to get out of the road and let a car pass. <laughs> I give you a challenge. Go play football on Decula Road this afternoon. <clears throat> After the service night, we'll come see you at Gwinnett Medical Center if you're lucky. That's how much this area has changed. But can I ask you a question? When God established Ivy Creek and placed it here, do you think God knew who would live here today? Sure he did. So do you believe that is in this story that those who have been who moved here maybe because of jobs 
or maybe because they like the schools, or maybe because their families live here. Whatever the reason that the people, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that moved into this community, do you believe that really they have been strategically placed here by God so that churches like Ivy Creek can take the gospel of Jesus Christ to them and be part of something that will make an eternal difference in their lives? See, I believe so. So that tells me that Ivy Creek has a huge responsibility, which leads to the final thing, and I'm done. Look at it. The church has a responsibility and privilege to deliver a message that points people to God. We have the responsibility and we have the opportunity and privilege to deliver a message that points people to God. Peter and John realized that. They could not ignore this man. They could not avoid eye contact with this man because they had a message that had changed their lives. And that message so burned in them. And their mission was so much a part of who they were. Missions was not something they did. Missions was something that was part of who they were. That they could not ignore this man. They had to engage him. So we'll look what happens. Go back to the story. It says that this man is there, and Peter and John look at him, and this is what they say. Look at us. Look at us. Now, that's interesting. He thought they were going to give him some money. He said, they said, look at us. Can I tell you this or ask you this? Can you say to your neighbors, look at me? So, oh, no, 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 Pastor Larry, I should tell people to look at Jesus. Can I tell you something my daddy taught me, my dad taught me? You may be the only Jesus a person sees this afternoon. When I was a teenager, my dad said it a little differently. When I was a teenager and about to head out and spend Friday night with my friends, my dad would always say this, Pastor Craig, always say this. He said, now, Larry, just remember, you may be the only Bible a person reads tonight. Now, let me tell you, as a teenager, that is not what you want to hear on Friday night. <laughs> that you may be the only Bible a person reads. And my dad believed that. My dad would say, you know, there are people in this community who will not pick up this book. There are people in this community who on their own will not come to our church. We are the only image they're going to get of Jesus. And by the way, <clears throat> the Bible says that we're to be salt and light. You know, he's the true light, but we're to be reflected light. And they can't look at him unless they first look at us. Amen? Because we're to reflect him. So Peter and John said, look at us. Look at us. And then as you look at the scripture, you realize that we don't have everything people want, but we do have what they need. Look at the scripture. What did Peter and John say? Silver and gold we do not have. But what we do have we give you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. Sir, I am so sorry. We don't have what you're asking for. But we've got something that's going to outlast any, any amount of money we could ever give you. Because what we're going to give you today comes from God himself through his son Jesus Christ and it's going to last into eternity. In fact, what we're going to have what we give you today is going to outlast your ability to walk. It's going to take you into eternity. 
Church, why would we not be on mission for God when we have what people need? Amen? Why would we... Listen, do you believe as I do that 100 years from today, every person who is alive, 100 years from today, the only thing that's going to matter is what they have done with Jesus Christ? It's all that's going to matter because there'll be an eternity. So if that is true, we must be urgent about our mission. But when people experience what we have to give, life change takes place. And the last thing I want to say, and I'm done, is this. Life change creates a contagious spirit in the church. <coughs> a contagious atmosphere. Now look at the story. <clears throat> I love those verses 8 through 10. That's why I read that. A lot of people stop short of that when they preach a message from this passage Verse 8 says he stands up leaping and praising God. And then it says he enters into the temple and he's leaping and praising God. Let me just say this. I don't think they had experienced a temple service very often like they experienced on that day. I can tell you this. <clears throat> we can say what we want to, but I don't think they were a Baptist church because there was some leaping and praising going on and I ain't sure we're into that, all right? But the truth for us is this. I believe this. When life change takes place, it creates an atmosphere of excitement and enthusiasm and happiness in a church that nothing else can produce. Amen? When you're seeing people change by the power of God. Nothing brings excitement. It's a whole other story I'm not going to get into, but let me tell you. Think about it. When you drive up and down... Gravel Springs Road, and in the subdivisions around here. When somebody has had a baby, what do you see out in front of their mailbox? Blue or pink balloons? It took me until our kids were born to know which one was blue, which one was pink. Now, I should have known. I said, look, they had a little baby boy. No, it was a little girl. It's a pink, pink. I don't know. My wife would correct me. But you know, it says something exciting is taking place. Let me tell you, when babies are born into the family of God, it brings excitement to a church. Nothing like it. I want to close with this. Several years ago, <clears throat> I was in a church service at Hebron. It's been a few years back. And I looked out one Sunday morning, Craig. And sitting out of the church was a very prominent Southern Baptist pastor. He later became president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He was on sabbatical from his church, and I thought, man... He chose our church to come worship. I got pretty excited. But then I looked to my left, and there was a young man sitting with a friend who'd experienced brokenness in his life, some brokenness that was no responsibility of his, other brokenness he'd brought on himself, but he was broken. Didn't know any of the songs we were singing. Wouldn't know Matthew from Revelation. Didn't know Old from New Testament. I'm not even sure he owned the Bible at that time. He was only there because a friend had brought him. And the friend had invited him because he played on our church softball team. He said, now wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. You allowed unchurched people to play on your church softball team? Only if they were good. No, I'm kidding. 
You say, Larry, if you allowed unchurched people to play on your church softball team, didn't that cause problems? If you think that way, you've never played ball with church people. <laughs> Those who have know what I'm talking about. Biggest problems I had were not with unchurched. They were with church, especially our own staff. Actually, our teams got better when we made a conscious decision because of our desire to be evangelistic to reserve two to three spots for unchurched people on each team. We did that, and then the teams got better because our Christians on the team didn't want to be a bad witness to our non-Christians, so they played better with a better attitude. Our non-Christians were just so thankful a church had let them play, they didn't want to mess it up, so we really had better teams. Should have done it years before. But that young man played, and he was sitting in church that day because one of his teammates had begun to engage him in conversation and invited him. And I will tell you this, the young man did give his life to Christ at a later time. Did you know that 85% of people who give their lives to Christ do so because a church member invites them to church and gets them connected to the community called the church family? And they hear the gospel repeatedly and they see it alive in people and then they give their life to Christ. The best thing you can do for your neighbor or your friend is to bring them here. Prominent pastor, broken young man. Let me ask you, who do you think brought God the most joy that day? What brings God joy is when we're on mission for him. Would you